All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, let's see. I didn't pass this around last time, so mark your name multiple times. Because <laughs> I, I don't have no idea what I did. And then, uh, do you need stuff from last time? I presume you did because the Easter time washed all things away. So this is the same thing you had. If you have one, fantastic. Hey, by the way, somebody in the lost and found left. Better give me a few of those back. I think oh, I went a bit long for you guys. That was <laughs> somebody left a, like a whole binder full of notes. If anybody's missing a black binder full of Bible study notes, it's down in the lost and found. You might check the lost and found, although I think there are some people who are shopping for gifts down there because there's been very, very good stuff left. It's usually high-end designer clothing, and um, I'm serious. The stuff that's been in there, I'm like, hey, hey. Yeah, hey, that's the place to go, because after, after about four weeks, it should, you shouldn't have to, uh, thank you. you. After about four weeks, you know, the, the time of the, the statute of limitations is probably up, don't you think? Okay, yeah, this is number five. We only got halfway through, even though I thought we were going to get all the way through, so we got halfway through, but we'll sort of, um, in some ways, this will be the last, you know, this will be the last gasp for these particular five things, but I hope you've, you know, come along and... I, I have found it very, uh, it's always nice when people remind you of things or teach you things. I found it very comforting um, in the course of this stuff. And I, you know, one of the things about uh, Dr. Kleinig, one of the, um, who I think is, I think I told you, I think he's, I have him, we have a handshake for him to be here, so I think in September, October, which will always be a good thing. But, um, you know, one of the great things is, it's great to sort of, the, the text just above the text I didn't read you today was a text about how older men and older women in the church are supposed to act very maturely and sort of help people who are younger find maturity. And that's not always chronological, of course. It has a lot to do with how your life works out and how you feel and um, how you've made your way through life and whether you've been able to avoid evil things and touch holy things and how you've dealt with evil things when they've come to you. So anyway, in some ways, John is like that. He's, you know, he's lived a long life, and um, he's sort of in the sweet spot for the church right now because he's had such a great range of experience from you know, pastoral care to university and then also in first world and third world uh, you know, situations and also engagement with stuff that is um, you know, sort of normal church-like like we have here to very difficult demonized places, you know, way back in all kinds of crazy things and great stories about, you know, angels and demons and how that all works out. And part of it is that he does that in a very sort of calm, matter-of-fact way. So there have been a couple of things to learn across the course of this, which is this particular, this fifth point sort of started with the notion of being alive to the notion of spiritual warfare, but not really what you see on television or what people normally think of. So people normally think of spiritual warfare as something to be engaged by very few people at some very sort of catastrophic, apocalyptic uh, in level of engagement. When in fact, you know, the reality of life is, and we especially rehearsed this over the last couple of weeks, which is, the world was a very good place. Uh, the world touched evil. Evil had its go. Christ comes and death dies. And we're in the course now of just sort of mopping things up. And so um, while evil is a very real thing, and sometimes it can be vicious and very surprising, and it can you know, just sort of 
shock you with, with uh, the difficulty of it, at some point it reaches its own level and almost it becomes almost a boring grind in some ways where patience and faithfulness is just what's required to make it through. So it's, it's not... as the, the way of the world is not that the battle against evil is for a few people at some apocalyptic level. The reality is, is that evil is for to be combated by all of us in all our little ways and to be to know that it can surprise us but not to be bothered so much by it when it does. You know, I told you the Luther story about, you know, the story of he wakes up and the devil's on the bottom of his bed. Uh, he's having sort of night terrors and he wakes up and he sees the devil sitting on the bottom of his bed. And then he says, oh, it's just you. And he rolls over and he goes back to sleep, you know. So roughly your engagement with evil is something like that. It can never be minimized when you never minimize people's pain or their evil or the things that they face. And um, you can certainly see a horrible example of minimizing pain and all the sexual abuse stuff that's gone on in the church. And finally the church sort of comes to, to, to look that in the face. So you can't say to people, you didn't suffer, there's not evil. But I just the, the, the thing to, to understand is, given... Given uh, the triduum, you know, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, the rest in the tomb, and Easter Sunday, he, the Lord has done the work. He's done the heavy lifting. Evil is vanquished, and you have the option of living without it or fighting against it on a regular, systematic, daily basis. Certainly the Eucharist plays into that. Certainly coming to church every Sunday plays into that. But your own prayers also pray into that. And one of the things I've appreciated across this is how especially... Um, we just, it's just the discipline and obedience of doing what the Lord asks us to do. We just tend our spot wherever we are. We do what we're given to do and coming to rejoice in that. So, for example, the prayers for, the, for our kids and, you know, Debbie's kids are older like my kids, you know, and, um, you know, little kids, little trouble, big kids, big trouble, wherever you're sitting, right? You know, I mean, it is, in fact, in some sense true. And... Uh, you know, but the but the fact is, you at a particular age, I don't know, past about nine, you can't control them anyway. But what you can actually do is pray for them and love them, and not shame them. Um, you know, people don't need to be shamed much. They don't need a lot of law. They are usually pretty well aware, especially your kids, because you live a particular life, and they can see the discontinuity between how you live and how they live. If in fact you're living that life. And so the, this, this has been the great thing of uh, what, what a joy prayer is because it's, such, it's a blessing for other people. And so you bless each other when you pray for each other. And you're, you know, your kids, you know, sometimes they're doing great and you rejoice in that. And sometimes they're off the rails and you pray for them to bring them back. But you don't, you know, so many things come around to this that it's a little bit of law and a lot of gospel, you know. So many things in life come around to that. Um, the world is a difficult place. It's an evil place. It comes to get us. And really the key to the Christian life, and this is, you know, it doesn't matter who you read, any great spiritual soul will tell you the key to the spiritual life, to a practical, regular spiritual life, is the practical, regular engagement of the disciplines. And by that I mean exactly what Jesus meant in Matthew 28 when he said, you know, baptizing them and teaching them to ponder up, to treasure all the gifts I've left behind. So one of the ways that you get people to do that is to pray them back into it. And when you pray, then we've talked about all the things that have happened. When you pray, 
You know, Jesus is more willing to hear than you are to pray. Jesus already knows, but he's waiting for that relationship, the back and forthness. That relationship is more comforting to you than it is to him. But he is a person like you're a person. And if you love Mary, I'm just telling you, if you love Mary, you should tell her sometime today. In the same way, if you love Jesus, you should tell him. At some point, you should tell him because he's telling you back all the time. And so what happens is you build this relationship and then you build family and that builds community and the community has a particular set of values but the community understands that people fall from that. When people fall from that, they're gracious. And we talked about how it's not your point, it's not your, you know, it's not your place to judge unless you're a, unless you're a judge, a pastor or a parent. You know, and kind of you can interpret those a little more widely. You know, parent kind of goes with teacher and pastor kind of goes with you know, if you have some leaders in the church. But unless you're, unless you're a judge, a pastor, or a parent, you sort of keep your nose out of it. And you let people who are meant to judge, judge, but you always keep your nose in it when it's time to grace people, mercy them, bless them, love them, pray for them. And you see, then prayer doesn't become a burden. It becomes this great joy where you're actually doing a kindness to somebody else when you pray for them, which is why it's so nice when I say, you know, who we should pray for, and you, in a very relaxed sort of way, can think of 20 people you should pray for this morning. And what's interesting, if you listen to the tone of people's requests, the tone of people's requests who pray a lot change from desperation to matter-of-factness. And that's actually a good change, because that means that you're, it's not your first time, right? It means that you've been engaged in it, um, and that the, that the good you're, you're doing is an ongoing good. What you don't want in a Christian life is these great peaks and valleys, these great bursts, and then everything falls apart. For you have a big burst, and then you get... No, what you want is the steady incline, and it will go up and down. It'll go light and darkness, but you want the steady incline toward maturity, and you want to draw people into that. You don't disdain people who touch evil. You, you, you pity them. You're sorrowful for them, and you pray that you would bring them back in blessing. So all of that goes with finally where we got to at this last point, which was, um, you know, how you actually live your normal life. And contrary to, you know, what we normally think of, um, you know, normally we think of as Christians as being quite aggressive in this crusading mentality of go out and conquer the world. Well, the reality is the world has been conquered. You know, last week, you know, what happened on Good Friday and what happened on Easter? Jesus dies to conquer on Good Friday he raises on Easter to assure you that all is well. And now he'll spend some time during these 50 days toward ascension saying to people, you saw me, it's well, it worked out, God is faithful, I'm here for you, I'll give you my Holy Spirit, stay here and get some work done, I'm going to be, um, be busy too. You, you get this sense of happy normalcy in the next 50 days, and then the church just goes about its business. Well, that's exactly um, what we saw in this text in Ephesians 6. And so you had this, you know, we did the text, you know, be strong. What does it mean to be strong? It means to stand, stay put, stay put, stay put, stay put, which means you're not the aggressor, but rather you're the one whose um, primary job is just to stay awake. And that's a difficult thing. You know, discipline... Is a, is a difficult thing for people. It's, a, it's difficult in smoking and eating and drinking and sleeping and exercising and loving people in prayers. Discipline is difficult um, because we, there's a couple of reasons. One is because by nature we're still disordered. 
and we're on our way to being fully human. And the other thing is just the very real notion that evil attacks. And so this, this, this it, evil is this strange thing. You always see the demons hanging around where Jesus is. They're drawn to, they're drawn to holiness the way, you know, moth is drawn to light. But when they get there, it destroys them. So this world is always going to be slightly disrupted, and sometimes more than slightly disrupted. But at the end, um, your job is to stay awake, pay attention, and say your prayers. And so one of the images that were, were, has, was used for that in the scripture is this image of a soldier. Not of a soldier going out to sort of capture a crusade, but of this soldier who stays awake. And then we talked last time, the last time we met, we talked about how your primary job is to be watching Okay, not in judgment, but your primary job is to be watching, to have the lay of the land. And if you see trouble, then you act appropriately. And you'll notice that the weapons that were used are primarily defensive weapons and gospel sort of weapons. So you act appropriately according to the gospel, and part of that is to be saying your prayers for other people, for yourself, certainly for yourself but also to be praying for other people as a way to, to bless them. And that's about, you know, about as far as we move through. So uh, the text says, you know, um, this is Ephesians 6, and it's, it's, it's there for you. you know, put on the armor of God so you have the strength to stand. The battle is not against flesh and blood. And so we've talked about this, and it's a lesson that we've learned. No human being. I mean, this great when people, you know, this was John's, you know, John to us. I, th- I can't remember if he said it to me or he said it to all of you, but he said to us, you know, you have no enemies. It's a great way to go through life. That you have no enemies. There's no human being that's your enemy. Your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is powers and principality. Your enemy is evil. And certainly people can be evil, can do evil, can hate you, but Jesus gives a whole raft of ways to take care of that, like turning the other cheek, you know, calling people to account in a gentle way privately, what you don't do is attack people and destroy them because they're not your enemy. Your enemy isn't flesh and blood. I mean, here it is. Um, you know, you, the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil. Those are your enemies. Okay? So take the full armor of God so when the evil day comes, you have the strength to stand. And John underlined this for you several times. Stand, 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 stand. And he tells you, you know, what you've got at your disposal. You've got truth. You've got righteousness. You've got um, the gospel of peace. It's very interesting that, that he expands the definition of the gospel. The gospel of peace is what happens. The gospel is the forgiveness of sins. When, people are, are for, when you forgive each other, there's no friction between you. When there's no friction, things are at peace. Okay? So the gospel of peace... The shield of faith, so, you know, you're protected, and, you know, as you grow, you know, um, you realize how valuable it is to have faith and how, you know, faith agrees with God no matter what the circumstances. God tells you he loves you. God tells you he's with you. God tells you he's bringing you home to Eden. God tells you that he'll knit everything together for your good. Um, God tells you that you're never alone and never unloved. And so, you know, you hold dear to that, okay? And um, then the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then we pulled that apart. That's kind of the last thing we did, was that all your prayers 
you know, are not I want a pony. You know, all your prayer, your prayer isn't this laundry list of the things you think you need. You actually, actually God gives you your prayers. So God speaks and we listen. And then we speak and God listens. So where does God speak? God speaks in the liturgy. God speaks at the Eucharist. God speaks at your baptism. God speaks in his scripture. You listen to that. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see how that works in your own life. So that's the difference between, um, you know, or that's what, that's what meditation on a text would be. To one, it's one thing to read the text classically. You read the text. But then meditation is simply the notion of seeing how it practically applies around you. And then you talk back to God. So God talks to you. He gives you, he gives you a word. You see how that word works in the world. You gather up all the sharp edges and all the troubles and you shoot that back to him. And so you have this back and forth between you and God. You know, breathing in and breathing out. Talking and listening. Listening and talking. And you develop this relationship. And then when troubles, it's just like a relationship with a person. If Martha and I are friends, if I go to Martha, if I talk to Martha, if I love Martha, if I seek consolation for Martha, if I need your evaluation, if I ask you, what do you think here? What should I do? Do you think this is a good fit? How about my kids? What do you... What happens is then we build this relationship over time and I find out that you're reliable and that you won't betray me. And then when things are difficult for me, I know that I can come to you and you'll stand by me. If you can find a couple of people like that in your whole life, you're extraordinarily fortunate because every sin is betrayal. But the great thing about Christ is he always stands by you and that's faith. Faith is to be able to say, come what may I'm in God's hands. Okay? And so we've we sort of talked about this across the course of the time, that we do sort of stay, you know, where, where the Lord has put us, and we stand and we wait. Um, pause. That was a really long sentence. I just, like the Germans, I've just put a period on it. It was all commas. And have you ever, do you ever read German stuff, you know? You know, it's like, what the heck? Where is the period? So that's what that was. Yes, right. Okay, Joyce, too. Yeah, there's some. So that's all just review, right? That's where we've been. Okay, that's all just where we've been. But just to kind of remind you, because now we're gonna we're gonna move through ascension into Pentecost, and in Pentecost, that's the time classically where you put things into practice. The first half of the church year tells the story. The second half of the church year puts the story into practice. We're right at the hinge of ascension. We're about to move from the story of Jesus to the story of Jesus in action with you. So the, the, the world is about to change here in these 50 days. We have these 50 days of glee where Jesus is going around grilling people fish and talking to people and letting them touch him and having fun. But after that, then the work of standing guard, standing watch begins. Okay? So if I can leave you, you know, you have to have this double, you have to have this double You have to engage, you have to have this double sense of evil. Evil is very potent, and it will ruin you. It's very strong stuff. And if you dabble with it, if you, you know, if you touch it, if you engage it, if you embrace it, I mean, it's Psalm 1. You look at it, you sit down, you engage it, and suddenly it possesses you. Evil is very strong stuff, but it's neither surprising nor insurmountable. And so you have to recognize it, and yet understand where the antidote is. Yes, please. Brazilian times, yeah, right. Right.
Thank you very much. Yes. Full armor is full protection. Yeah. And anything less isn't. And of course, you know, part of the problem is when you look around now, I mean, you're all here on a Friday morning having a cup of coffee, loving each other, but you're going to come to church on Sunday and you're going to see people and you're going to think, man, you're just half-dressed, right? I mean, that's what you're going to, you're going to look at people, you're going to say. Now, part of it is, is what should your response be to people who are half-dressed? I mean, there's a couple of different responses. Yeah, part, part, something, is, something is better than nothing. Yes, exactly right. So semi-naked is better than naked. That's Leslie's contribution for the day. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, part, 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 something is better than nothing. And that's, that's actually a very helpful thing to observe. Yes, please. Yeah, yes, genius. So partly, yeah, you, you're, you, it's not going to help to scream, why don't you get dressed? Because you've tried this at home and it really doesn't work that well, right? <laughs> You know, I mean, right? But yes, genius to talk about that you can cover them. That's a great, that's a great image, right? And partly what you do with your prayers is you cover them. You make it safe for them. I mean, Paul, to stretch Paul's analogy of standing in the breach, which we're going to talk about, you make it safe for them until they get covered up. That's a very different understanding of the church from you yell at people until they fall in line, Right? Yes, right. That's right. Yes, I hear. Mm, ah, right. That's grandma. So, I mean, so this is very, very helpful. This, you know, full armor is full protection. Half-dressed is better than not dressed. You can help people who come half-dressed, and the way that you help them is not to yell at them, but to cover them. See, this whole thing, this whole thing of shaming that the, that the, and that the church has lived by, and God bless the Lutheran Church, but I can't, I've never met anybody. Who's the oldest person in here? Okay, don't tell me. But the problem is, is I bet even the oldest person, I would, get, I would bet that the, but the Lutheran church in, in America, I would bet, you know, shaming was the popular tool ever since forever in the Lutheran church. I mean, your Catholic friends have this, they have the notion of Catholic guilt, right? Which you can, you know, no daughter of mine, whatever, or no good Catholic, or when was the last time you were, how about you, or exactly. So this whole notion of shaming becomes our primary way of getting people to stick in line. Well, what good does that do? So people behave for a short period of time while they're shamed, and then they get out someplace with their friends, yeah, where, where nobody will shame them. You have to get to a place where there is no shame in order not to be shamed, and then you wonder why people go places where they get in all kinds of trouble, right? It is called college in some cases, yes. I'm just, you know, every, you know, it is, and I'm sure this happens to you. Every once in a while, somebody will report to you on your children, and I kind of think in, I don't have a Facebook, but I do know how to get on Facebook, so... <laughs> You know, but actually, your your comment was so helpful. I mean, this whole notion of covering people, you know, and that has a lot of. If you expand that, that verb has a lot of possibilities, right? Where you cover people. I mean, physically, but you know, we cover for people, or fly cover for people, or are cover for people, or so it's safety, right? It's safety. And so, um, what would happen in the ancient world, uh, and you can see this in the, you can read this even in the Old Testament. So we, we talked about sentry duty, you stand on your posts, the posts are scattered, the, the, the posts make a perimeter around, you can't fall asleep, it's a penalty of death if you do fall asleep, because if you fall asleep and the enemy overruns your post, the whole family, the whole community is in danger, right? Now, what happened when, I don't know if you or any of you 
I always seem to have more men who do military history, but sometimes women do. So what happens when there was a breach in the wall? Do you, watch, do you ever watch old movies? You should stay up. I mean, I know because swamp people and stuff like that, you don't watch military movies like you used to, but uh, that's the kind of stuff you watch, right? Kirby always walks in and she goes, I can't believe you're watching that. I'm like, I'm not watching. I was just going through and I can't figure out why that guy's hand in an alligator's mouth. People are paying for that. So anyway, anyway, uh, what happens when there was a breach in the wall? How did they fix it? Did anybody know? This is Beth Kout's military expert coming through. Anybody, how did they fix one? So you know what a breach in the wall is, right? You get a break in the wall, and everybody pours through. You know how they did it? Go ahead. That's right. But the first thing they do is, when they get a breach in the wall, so the wall gets broken, the first thing they do is they find a bunch of volunteers to step out through the breach in front of it. Right? And then the next thing they do is fill up the breach behind. Normally, this goes very badly for the people who have stepped out. <laughs> but that is how, that's how the breach was fixed, that you actually had to... Pe- now, you see, it isn't an aggressive move, right? It's still not this, we're charging forward to kill people, but it is. And Beth's probably, you know, the word of the day, you know, what you do is you step out and you give cover to the people behind you who fixed the breach. Which means in the church, you actually have to have people who are willing to step up Then you have to have people who are willing to go to work. And both sets of those people have to understand that the people behind them, you're actually doing it for the half-naked people who aren't quite, who for any blow would be deadly for them. Maybe I could put it that way, right? That makes sense? Right? And that's that's actually what he's talking about here. So um, it doesn't seem like much at first glance that what you're meant to do is just simply to stand, um, stand pat. But um, it is really true that when he talks about a century, the two things you do are you stand your ground, because that's where the Lord has put you. And if you need to read about that, um, you know, the last part of the catechism that nobody reads, the small catechism, talks about station and vocation. So station is the place that somebody puts you, so we need somebody um, you know, so station, you're, what, would you, what would stations be? Like, what are some of the things where, where you get put? So your station would be wife, mom, you know. So sometimes you have multiple stations. So that's, uh, yeah, a good neighbor. Also um, a member of this church, right? If you sort of think about what the things are where you've been put. So all the places, sometimes you have a job, sometimes you, um, you know, so you're, you know, you can be a dad, a workman, a husband, you can be a volunteer at church, you can be a good neighbor. You start to, what happens is the, the station is the place where God puts you, the vocation is the stuff you do. So the last part of the small catechism talks about station and vocation. Hardly anybody reads this partly because it's poorly translated. But it's not, it's, it's not talks, it doesn't talk about station of vocation. And then everybody is in everybody else's business because nobody minds what their particular station and vocation is. So basically, you do your work, everybody else does their work, and then the Lord knits it all together. Well, um, that's what's happening here. You all have your work to do. You stand your ground wherever the Lord puts you, and then you stay awake, and then you wait to see what happens next. And in doing that, you're not kind of concocting things to work out the way that you want them to do, you simply keep the discipline. You go to the Eucharist, you say your prayers, you remember your baptism, 
you don't touch evil things, you do touch holy things, and you get up and you do it the next day, and then you see what the world brings you. And whatever it brings you, you manage it well. So, you know, uh, I'm sure you have, you know, across the course of the time that your kids get older, there's a point where they get a little bit older, ninth, 10th grade, 11th grade, into college. I mean, the repeated speech is, you have a lot of gifts, now you need to be able to manage them, right? Especially in this area, kids have a lot of advantages, a lot of gifts. But the hard thing is to be able to learn to manage those. The way that they learn to manage it is they watch you people who are faithful. I mean, most people, you know, they learn by action. They learn by watching. They learn by feel. So it's so important to be part of a community where people pray for each other, where they're kind, where they stay awake, where they're vigilant, where they don't, where the primary exercise is not to shame people but to bless them, that the primary exercise is not to curse them but to pray for them. This is why it's so important to build a healthy community. Because when you have a healthy community, just like when you have a healthy family, you raise healthy kids, you raise healthy parishioners. Yeah, there's always people who you know go off the rails because they're under attack from within, original sin, and they're under attack from without. You know, evil is drawn to holiness to try to destroy it. One of the things about evil is it's stupid. You know, I mean, the, the stupidity, I mean, the, really, Satan is, you know, a genius and stupid all at the same time. Because he always has this notion that he'll win, right? And then the other thing um, is that um, when you suffer, so let's say you suffer, so you're attacked, it's spiritual attack, you suffer desperately, Satan thinks he's just about got you, and then what do you do? There's two possibilities. What are your possibilities? You can either, yeah, you can curl up at a ball and die, but if you pray, see, here's the, here's the ironic, clever, fun, beautiful, wonderful thing, is when you pray, when you go to the Eucharist, when you remember your baptism, when you're faithful to your station of vocation, the attack of evil has had just the other effect. And so in some sense, evil is one of Christ's greatest blessings to you, or it can become... So the attack of evil, when managed correctly, strengthens and purifies you and does exactly the opposite of what evil intends. That's why it's so stupid. It tries to destroy you, and instead it strengthens you. It's very interesting, and that is at the base of what it means when when it says God knits together all things for the good of those who love God. It doesn't mean that God beats you down and then raises you up. Primarily, what it means is that you live in a world where evil is drawn to you to attack you, but if you keep the discipline, go to the Eucharist, say your prayers, stick together as a community, don't shame, increase in love, if you do that, just the opposite thing happens. Does that make sense? And this is true in your own family, too. You have great... Look, think of all the people we prayed for today. So there's all these people we prayed for who are sick. And one of two things will happen. The sickness will either destroy them, and I don't mean they'll die, push that off the table. I just mean that they'll lose faith, they'll despair, they'll become hopeless, they'll feel friendless. The other thing is, is that that evil is the possibility for great support and joy. You know? Um... That's a, that's a really remarkable thing. And managing that takes a ton of possibility. Or, or, I mean, it's a ton of cleverness with a, with a great possibility on the far end. The Christian life is so simple. 
you know. It's so simple if it's just done, you know, which is why, of course, there's the reminder every Sabbath day. Every Sabbath day because that's what builds the habit. I mean, whether you know it or not, you're touched by holiness every time you come here. So, um, okay. Trying to think of what else is left to say to you. Yes, please. Um, you know, they're confused. They're kind of confusing in English. Station is the place. Vocation is the work. So your station is your, your mom. That's one of your stations. Your vocation is, okay, you've got to drop the kids off at 9. You've got to pick them up at 10. They go to the dentist at 11. Somebody's got a runny nose at 12. That's vocation, right? So the action that you do. So you have particular things to do as a mom. I have particular things to do as a pastor. I have very different things to do as a husband. I have very different things to do as a father. Sometimes they interact, trying to keep them all, you know, on the rails is extraordinarily difficult. It is for you, too. You get better and worse at it. You get help. You fail sometimes. Sometimes it works brilliantly. But you have a lot of things, you know. Yeah, it's the place where you've been put. It's the location. So in your house, you're the mom. And as you know, every day is Mother's Day, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the who you are. And so station is the who you are. And the location is what you do. But they're, you know, of course, interrelated. But one of the big things there is to make sure that you know that you are faithful to do the things that you are meant to do and you keep your nose out of everybody else's station and vocation. So it's very much your job to raise your kids, but not to raise Katie's kids. She's going to be fine. That's her station and vocation. She may ask you for some help, but it's not your job to discipline her kids, right? Unless you ask her to. Or unless, you know, I mean, you know. And so I don't want to completely eliminate the notion of, you know, we're kind of a community and we're all in it together. But honestly, you know, every once in a while, you know, you have the kids running wild downstairs after a service, which I'm like, you know what? They sat still for 63 minutes. They can run wild. But every once in a while, you'll see somebody kind of, you know, harumphing like this. Like, well, okay, so we could yell at all the kids and then they'll stay home next week and then it'll be really quiet at this time, but we won't have any running around, right? At that point, I think, I think you exercise wisdom yes, because this is a greater good. But, but very few things around here rise to the level of tip the coffee pot over, right? No, I wasn't thinking of down here specifically, but other functions sometimes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you have to. Sometimes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they get out the sharp knives, you clearly want to say something. <laughs> but, but our problem isn't... See, you always, I was thinking about this this morning because I was reading something else and I was thinking about Lutherans and blah, blah, blah. And, we have to manage the problem we have. So if we have a chronic group of coffee pot tipper overs, swing into action and get some reinforcements. But if we don't, you know, what's that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which would be one option. That would be one, you know, one clever option would be to serve iced coffee. We'll, so we'll ice the coffee rather than yell. That would be one, one possibility. But, you know, a lot of times we're solving problems we don't have. You know, so is our problem, let's just take here, is our problem that our kids... You know, let's just go 12 years old and under misbehaving. 
Man, I don't think so. Our problem, I think kids under, and none of my kids are under 12, so this is not self-reflecting. The kids in this congregation under 12 are genius. I mean, they cause very little trouble. And there's, there, there are rarely tears, hardly ever a bloody nose. I mean, they just, I mean, they like each other. I mean, they're busy, but they're kids. And they don't, they're not disrespectful. And, you know, you know, about the hardest thing you have here is they run around upstairs and downstairs and get away from us. That's about the worst thing we face, right? So, you know. And they're here. And they're here. Right. And if you, and if you shame them or scream at them or yell them, they're not going to be here. So, and that's true for, if, frankly, when they're 20 or 25, too. I mean, if you shame them or yell or scream at them, they're not going to be here. The amount of guts it takes to walk through the front door of a church, un, un, like alone, you know, without knowing anybody, it's virtually impossible. There's none of you who would walk through the front door of a mosque or a synagogue. There's none of you. It is that foreign to people. So if they come in and then somebody gives them this right away, you can guarantee they'll never be back. What, so here's the genius, and I'll just, you know, you know this, but I'll just say it out loud. Part of the reason we treat your kids the way we treat them is because we want them to have a decade of feeling like the church is the place that loves them. Because when they're six, it's going to be very, when they're 16 or 26. And at 16, when they're completely idiots, we still want to know that this is the place that we love them. And at 26, we want to know that this is the place that will take them back. Right? That's what we're trying to do. And not just for them, but for all their friends. And if they're always in a congregation where people are doing this, they're not going to come back at 16 or 26. They're not. If they come back, they're going to come back to somewhere else. So the whole method behind this madness of letting them go within boundaries is that your kids have this warm experience of St. John that is not only for them individually and them collectively, but them and all their friends who are going to other places where people are giving them this. And then we'll be the place that are giving them this. Make sense? This is not that hard. Right? It's all about being kind to people. Part of being kind to people is watching out for them, covering them up, praying for them, loving them. You know, and short of tipping the coffee, if they're going to tip the coffee over on themselves, you should probably stop that. But you know, short of that, right? Yes, please. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. Yeah, because there was no sense of community. Nobody said, hey, how about you? And believe me, you're, you're an easy target because you're a pastor's kid and you're very non-threatening and, you know, you know, hardly any tattoos that are visible. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, you're, I, mean, you, I mean, you walk into a church you'd expect, right? Right. And so, so, of course, and now that you're on the other side of that, of course, what you need to do is, you know, even though you very much want to talk to those two, yeah. you know, cohorts in crime, yeah. when somebody new walks in, basically what you need to do is, you know, right? Yeah. Because you want to be part of the gang. Mm-hmm. And all of that is just about being a community and being kind to people. It's, it's not that, it's funny that Christianity is not that hard, but it does take a tremendous amount of discipline and obedience. But you have to hear those things as a blessing to you and not a curse. As long, as soon as you get to the notion that the church isn't trying to ruin your fun, or that somehow that evil will have a, 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 a more prodigious payoff than good. As soon as you get to that point, that's the single thing, that holiness is a blessing and evil is a curse. As soon as you figure that out, the world opens up to you and everything becomes clear. So just this very simple thing of touch holy things and don't touch evil things, the very discipline of that 
And by discipline, I simply mean the habitual doing of it, the habitual touching of holy things and the habitual non-touching of evil things. Just don't go there. I mean, the best thing I ever heard in confession is where somebody said once, I've just figured out that my sins aren't good for me. I'm like, praise Jesus, you know. But that's a, that's a brilliant thing to be able to say. You know, I just figured out that my sins aren't good for me. I'm like, yeah, your sins aren't good for you. So, um, but this half-naked analogy is actually quite good because that actually, one way to press that is for people who haven't figured out that being fully clothed is better than being half-clothed, right? I mean, it actually really works. Like, why, you know, if you put on all your clothes, it'll be better for you than putting on half your clothes. Well, not everybody believes that, right? But if you come to believe that, when you finally realize, like, you know, I have this image of this, this I keep having this image of this throughout this thing of this cop in Chicago that got shot just over the top of his Kevlar vest. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. A few weeks ago? And like they said, you know, later than they said three quarters of his blood dribbled out before they got him to the hospital. But it was just like, you know, it was by an inch or something, right? It just got over the top and then it rattled around inside him because, you know. Yeah, and you just go, you know, it's better for you to have that on. Occasionally you're going to get nicked up, but it's better to, you know, it's, it's better to have it on. Yes, please. Yeah, because here's the thing. Judgment and hatred come very naturally to us. Almost habitually, if you will. It's very easy to judge other people. It's, it's extraordinarily easy. We do, it, we do it unconsciously. We do it, what people are wearing, what they do, what they drive, what their kids are like, how they looked at us, how they didn't look at us, what we think is going on, even if it's not going on. We, we are filled with judgment about other people, right? We're just filled with it. And it comes out of people, you know, like a pulsar. You know, you can feel the judgment, or you can also feel when it's just turned off. Like nobody even cares enough to, to, to even look at me, right? You can feel both of those things. The people could care less about you, or the people are in judgment of you all the time. That has to get switched off. And what you have to do is come to the point where you love people in the way that Jesus loves them. And see, this all goes back to not having any enemies, you know, there are very few things that you need to judge about. There's like ten of them. So love the child and then grab their coffee pot. Yeah, <laughs> because what would happen? That's a good fourth commandment thing, which is you sort of have this greater responsibility to keep people out of harm's way, but you don't have a, you know a, a responsibility to dress them down because they're not wearing a necktie or you don't like the length of their hair or pick something, you know, right? So we have to make, the the whole point is we have to make very few judgments. We have to make very few, and you only get to make them if you're put in that position. And frankly, it's not very pleasant to make judgments with people, to say to people, you know, it's just that we, because it's unpleasant, we institutionalize it so that we can get a little, we can get more comfortable with it, but we shouldn't. It should be an uncomfortable thing. um, That'll take you to the place where you want to be. So kind of last thing. you know, the last thing Kleinig said here is think diabolically. So you know, you know, diabolos, you know, devil, diabolically. You know, this is from his notes that I, you know, when I jotted down things he said. You know, um, you have to think diabolically. You have to think about what the devil would do to you to try to mess up your life if you think. And chief among them is to stop going to church. It's really interesting, you know, um, 
One of the most interesting conversations a pastor has, especially around here, I haven't noticed as much in other congregations, although maybe I just haven't talked to enough guy. It's so interesting that people will not come to church and then if we call them or say we haven't seen you, they say, well, I stopped coming to church and nobody noticed. Or I stopped coming to church and nobody called me. So I don't come to church anymore because nobody called me. I'm like, I'm always trying to think which commandment says you shouldn't go to church and it's somebody else's fault. You know, here's the thing. The, the commandment is you go to church, you know, come hell or high water, no matter what's going on. The whole notion of, I once had, this is a true story, you can't make this stuff up. I once, a guy had been gone for like 12 weeks, and so I called and I said, you know, what's up? He said, well, I've been sending you a message. I'm like, really? He said, I said, how you been sending a message? He said, 12 weeks in a row, I put an empty, an empty envelope in the plate. Didn't you notice? Yeah, exactly. See, you would notice that. But I'm like, I'm like, you think that I count and rip open the envelopes and somehow I'm supposed to intuit the fact that you're sending me a message about not coming to church? Because, I mean, you know, you think to yourself, and very often when we call people, they're like, somehow they try to put it back on us. It's not on us at all. You're each responsible to go to church every Sunday, no matter what's happening. That, the, third, the third commandment does not have a qualification of, you know, remember the Sabbath day unless you don't like the incense or the pastors or somebody looked at you cross-eyed at the coffee pot. No, actually, it's your responsibility to be in church. It's actually not my responsibility to make you be in church. It's my responsibility to have church. It's your responsibility to be in church. And that is unmitigated. Now, we try to, all the other things I say come into play, which is we try to make it as welcoming and as encouraging as we can. But it's not my responsibility if you're not in church. It's not. I'll answer to the Lord for how I have church. You'll answer to the Lord for whether or not you were there at 8.30 and 11. So, I mean, it's just very important. Some people, will, sometimes people will talk about the lost sheep and blah, blah, blah. The thing about the lost sheep is as soon as you come to them, they're like, take me home, take me home. That's the lost sheep story. The lost sheep story is not, uh, well, I was going to say something. I shouldn't have said that. Um, forget you. There, there you go. That's not the lost sheep story, okay? That is not the lost sheep story. The lost sheep story is, I'm really lost, and thank God you're going to take me home. Uh, the lost sheep story isn't, hey, I'm really busy here. That's not the lost sheep story, okay? So everybody is responsible for their own. Now, what you have to do is think diabolically. You have to remember that's exactly what Satan wants, is to keep people out of church, because if people come to church, they're actually going to like church. Their lives are actually going to get better, and then they're going to flourish, and the church will get stronger, and eventually they'll get dressed, and then they'll be able to be some good for the kingdom, and life will just get better and better and better. So, all right, questions about any of that? I only have one last thing to say, but is there anything left over? So, um, it's going to get harder. Um, One of the hardest things is, and I think John has this at the end, you know, the, th- the Desert Fathers, you know, Agathon and the de- Desert Fathers. So, you know, the, what would happen is, you know, the Desert Fathers, it was this tradition for a, a few hundred years, and you still have hermits today um, who live out somewhere, uh, um, you know, all by themselves, and all they do is pray. And uh, But praying is extraordinarily hard for a range of reasons, partly because you work against it yourself, partly because Satan works against you, partly because we want to see the fruit of our prayers and we don't always see it and there's just a range so the brothers asked him amongst all good works which is the virtue that requires the greatest effort so what's the greatest thing that i could do he answered forgive me 
but I think there's no labor greater than that of the prayer to God. Okay? Now you can take that as a plus or a minus. You can either say prayer's really hard or I'm not going to do it, or you can say prayer's really good and then you can think about this. For every time a man wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, want to prevent him, for they know that it is only by turning him from prayer that they can hinder his journey. Whatever good work a man undertakes, if he perseveres in it, he will attain rest. But prayer is warfare to the last breath. I mean, that really is, um, you know, it is in fact true. But the way you comfort yourself is this notion that um, the warfare strengthens you, it doesn't destroy you. And so when the devil comes to you to destroy you, if you persevere, it does exactly the opposite, with it, which, which is it strengthens you. If people, I mean, in some sense, this notion of, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is in fact true for prayer. So your normal thing is that, so this is the normal Christian life. You become a Christian, you immediately become a target. Because you're a target, you immediately have an engagement with evil. Um, evil can be very frightening, but over the course of time, you can get used to it, survive it, and even conquer it. The thing that you must not do is befriend it. Okay? If you befriend evil, you're done for. So evil can attack you. It can be frightening. It can be brutal. It can take a long time to work its way through. It can feel dark. However, if you stand your ground, listen for the voice of Christ in the darkness, talk back to him as he calls you, and put one foot in front of the other. Everything works out okay. And you will find that when you come out of the darkness into the light, you're better than you were before. You're more strong. Um, you're more clear-headed. You're more pure. And after a period of rest, you're ready for the next thing. And that's actually how maturity works in a human being. Great suffering, and then pause, and then great suffering, and then pause, and great suffering. And if you don't short-circuit that, then you actually come to the point that was described in the text today where it says, make sure all you older men and older women take care of younger men and younger women so that they grow up in the faith too. Because at baseline, there is the possibility to enjoy heaven on earth insofar as we're willing to live together as a community. And prayer is integral to that especially praying for other people and not, not judging them. That makes sense? So there you go. Yes, please. The devil is the comforter of the faithful? That's actually his quote for what I was describing with Carol, which is, um, <laughs> Luther says, um, Luther once calls, so he's, Luther has a similar thing, he says, the temptations of the devil are the school of prayer. You know, like, what does that mean? So he says, you won't pray unless you're attacked. Okay. But the attacks are counterproductive because they push you back into Scripture and the Eucharist. Right, that's, that's above it. Yes, right. Yeah. And that's, so, so if you push that to the next thought, um, the devil is the, is the comforter of the faithful. So he, his very temptations push you back into comfort. If it goes the other way, it can also destroy you. So I'm trying to warn you against that. So if you, if you, if you resist the temptation... It turns to your comfort. If you engage the temptation, it destroys you. That makes sense? Yes, there could be a period there, I think. 
the worst temptation is no temptation. Which is, that's just the old C.S. Lewis thing of, right. you know, leave him alone. Right. If a man doesn't, if a man's not bothered with Jesus, just leave him alone because he'll wake up one day and find himself in hell. Right? right? So, and that, it's just this whole note. I mean, it's trying to say the same thing in different ways. The temptation can actually, God indeed tempts no one. Right. We pray in this petition that, right? So God doesn't tempt us, but the world is still an evil place. It's still being mopped up. Evil's going to come. Temptation's going to come. When you resist that, the great irony and cleverness is that temptation becomes a benefit rather than a curse. If managed correctly. If managed correctly. Exactly. Yes. And, but see, this is why discipline is so important because, you know. Yeah. But it only heals that way if you do what the doctor tells you, right? And that's what we have. I mean, the bottom. Exactly. And that's, see, this is the problem. I mean, the, bo- the only sin is we have trouble doing what we're told. This is between Jesus and everybody else. Jesus can do what he's told. You don't. It's a simple thing. If we did everything we were told, life would be fine. We refuse to do what we're told. Eat that, don't eat that. Oh, I think I'll eat that. So, um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. But the discipline of it. That's the, that, and that's why you have to be encouraged of each other. You know, if somebody doesn't come to church, you, you sort of draw them back. And when they make all these excuses about why they can't come, it's like, those mean nothing. That, that means nothing. It has nothing to do with it. You're in church or you're not in church. Everything else means nothing. Okay? Now, you can say that from one side. The other side is we have to make church the place where everybody wants to be and feels comfortable and loved. But honestly, you know, there's no excuse for not being there. The Lord speaks. Come to church and I'll give you a gift. And if you say, I won't come to church, it's on you. It's not on anybody else. Not on me, not on any other person. So that's the, you have to engage the temptation properly. Properly means you come to the gifts and they strengthen you. And if you don't, gosh, you're fair game and your life is going to be miserable. Maybe not today, but someday and, uh, you know, maybe for a long time. Okay, good. Uh, Let's pray and then go have some fun and see you next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Can I, can I say one more thing? Um, if, you're having a little, if you're having a little trouble just structuring your own prayers, I'll just give you one of the prayer cards. I have cards that have the thing that we use in the morning. The form doesn't matter so much, especially as you're starting. It's just the doing of it. And if you're, now if, you're, I'm, you know, if you come to this point and you say, I want to do this and I don't know what to do, just chat with me. I can give you something in 60 seconds that will straighten it all out for you. So, okay, have fun. Thanks.